Well, it's been an incredible story so far. But like I said, I believe God's got a new turn in this moment right here and right now. And you have been prayed over by multiple people before you walked into this space this morning. And I believe this sermon series is going to collide with seasons of life that are all over the map in such a specific, special way. We're going to jump into a new series right now, and it's called Trust the Story. Trust the Story. Can you look at somebody next to you and say, trust the story? Just trust the story. Here's the thing about our God. Our God is writing this grand overarching story and the headline reads, Jesus wins. That's why we put those words as many places as we can possibly put it because we don't want to forget the purpose of the story. We don't want to forget the main story. The main story of humanity, past, present, future, is Jesus wins. He's the champion of all history. He's moving in the present. Like Cheryl said, there are churches gathered all over the world, and the name of Jesus is being made famous. Don't believe the headlines of what you read in the news every single time. Can I get an amen about that? But believe the headlines that are written in heaven, Jesus wins. And that's the headline of the future. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. But inside of that grand overarching story, there's our stories. And what's amazing about our God is he gives us this incredible invitation to be a small part in the story right here and right now. And that's actually exhilarating and thrilling to notice that you are a part of the story of eternity. And you, if you know Jesus personally, get to be a part of the name of Jesus being made famous all over the world. But here's what's different about being in this story. You're actually a participant, not an observer. So we're driven towards stories. Almost everyone in here is either a books person or a movie person or both. And we love stories. We love getting absolutely entrenched in details where, here's what we love about it. We love being caught up in the tension between what we are seeing happening in a given moment and how the story might ultimately end. When you find yourself in that tension, whether you're like me and you like romantic comedies or you like thrillers and suspense or you like reading books that nobody laughed at that. It's like, is he being serious? Dead serious. <laughs> totally. But it's that curiosity of like you get in the tension of I'm in this moment right now and I'm just wondering and, and you kind of enjoy that anxiousness that I don't know how this is going to translate to how this ends, but I'm going to keep following along because I want to see it through to the end. But the different thing about being in the story of God is you are not an observer just watching how this whole thing unfolds. You're in it and you play a part in the story. And the problem with that is for so many people, their part in the story becomes an effort to control the narrative. And so instead of trusting the story that's unfolding all around them, we mistake our role in participating for an invitation to be an author. And we try to control outcomes and manipulate details. And this isn't just us in 2021. This is like the story of the Bible. When you go back to the beginning in Genesis, there is a theme. Human beings trying to control the story. Adam and Eve going, you know what? We could trust that this fruit is not good for us, but we're going to actually manipulate this and do things our way. And what results? Self-destruction. Cain and Abel. Cain had no reason to be offended by the fact that Abel's sacrifice was more pleasing to God. But yet envy slips in. He murders his brother. And the consequences that come from the decision to take things into his own hands lasted the rest of his life and were passed down in his family legacy. You read on, you read about Abraham, who was the father of our faith, this amazing man of God who believed God even when it was impossible. 
But sometimes you read a story like that and you forget the fact that, no, he actually sort of wavered in his faith a little bit. Now, I don't say that against what Hebrews says of like not wavering in his overall faith that God would come through. But he wavered in the details of believing that he could somehow contribute toward the narrative God was going to write by taking things into his own hands. So he sleeps with his wife's maidservant, Hagar. You should read the Bible sometime. It's got some interesting stories in it. And he creates this nation that to this day surrounds Israel and has a history of so much violence, Millions of lives lost and so much destruction. Why? Because when human beings see their participation in God's story as an invitation to control the narrative, everything self-destructs. But the good news, and y'all need to look up here and receive this because I've been thinking about this moment all week long and I cannot wait to tell you this. The good news is this. One moment in the present of trusting the story can supernaturally change the future and retroactively work every single failure and mistake of your past into the ultimate masterpiece God is writing in the here and now. He doesn't waste anything. We sang, he's an artist, he's a potter, and he takes the worst moments in our stories and goes, if you trust me now, I'll take what you did then that had nothing to do with the story I want to tell in and through your life and actually work all things for your good and for my glory overall. So I want to invite you in this series to trust the story, but I I don't want to invite you into a moment where I'm going to be calling you to do something. This series is less about what God has called us to do and more about letting go of what God has not called us to own. Maybe, here's a better way of saying that, maybe the thing God has called you to do is to let go of what you were never supposed to own. Maybe our part is rest. Maybe our part is getting out of God's way and letting him control the story and let him remind us today that no story in this room is final. So inside of your story, there's 10,000 different stories going on. There's the story of your career. There's the story of your marriage. There's the people in your family. There's things that have gone wrong. There's things that are going right. There are narratives unfolding all around you right now. And I know that the temptation can be to spend your whole life anxiously awaiting the results or trying to contribute toward what you want. But what I want to tell you is this. God blesses it where human beings come with open hands and go, God, here's my story. And if you let your story, Jesus wins, shine through mine, even though there will be brokenness and even though there will be difficulty, and even though there will be dark nights, dark nights, I trust you. And as your pastor, I need to tell you this, and I need to tell everybody online, everybody in Birmingham, everybody at Lake Martin right now, ACC, we have a dangerous tendency of being faithful to obey God when he says go, but not being faithful to listen and rest when he says stop. Like our, our bend is toward obedience, and I've seen this in you guys. When there's a problem, you meet it. When there's a need, you fill it. When it's like, what does it look like for my family to grow? Yes, we'll take somebody in. Yes, we'll bring this to the hospital. Yes, and we are a go, go, go church. But here's the problem with that. When that attitude suddenly shifts into your relationship with God and in areas where you're supposed to trust the story and just let things unfold, you actually keep that attitude of being action-oriented. You ended up with a fear-based mentality toward activity instead of a faith-rooted mentality that's rooted in identity. I am who God says I am, and I find rest in that. And as the story unfolds, it is my faith and it is my rest that produces the work. So the work of being a part of the story flows from knowing that the one who's writing it is in total control. And my part is to rest. My part is to let him write it. Are you excited about this series? I'm pumped about this series. We're going to be looking at a lot of Old Testament characters, but God gave me something so special and so unique today. Before I tell you where we're going to be going, if you have your Bible, hold it up. Come on, 830. Coming here, seven years, 
Still, wow. Um, I know him really well. Sorry for the, the shameful look. Hold them up. Hold them up. Come on, y'all. Hold them up. Okay. If you are married or taken, turn with me to the book of Jude. Everybody else at the 830 service opportunity post-Valentine's Day, take a safe look around. And then turn with me to the back of your Bible to Jude. Some of y'all are new and it shows. You're like, they do this? Yes. Trust the story. God could be writing something new today. Okay, Jude. Jude is right before Revelation, and this is one of the most little talked about books of the New Testament because it's only one chapter. But Jude was actually a major player in the kingdom of God during the first century. This was an amazing period where the church is spreading all over the world, and Jude was actually one of Jesus' half-brothers. And we don't talk about him a lot because he's only got this little book of the Bible, but he actually, at the beginning of this story, he says, I just wanted to write a general letter to Jewish Christians about salvation. But then he says, problems have arisen and I'm actually writing you this letter so that you will contend for your faith. And he says, there's some people among you who claim the grace of God, but they use and abuse the grace of God as a license for immorality. I know it's not relevant for 2021 at all. They're like, he's like, they're among you, and you think they're one of you, but really they're just using the grace of God as their excuse to do whatever they want in life. And Jude is a harsh, harsh warning with a lot of Hebrew things that I would encourage you, if you ever study Jude on your own time, you need help. Like you're going to need resources to understand everything you're reading because he isn't just going to quote books of the Bible. He's going to quote some Hebrew texts that they were familiar with 2,000 years ago that you're going to be reading about Michael the archangel and Enoch. And you're going to be like, what is all of this? So study it deeply. That's not what I'm looking to do today. I'm looking to look at the beginning of this letter and the end of it. Because I think when you see how Jude describes the story that we are living in as Christians, he'll invite you to trust the story. Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. I'm going to read it again. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. In two verses, Jude has summarized the beginning and middle and end of your story if you are a Christian. Every story has a setting Every story has the middle, and every story has that conclusion, that resolution. And Jude comes out going, hey, it's me, brother of James. What does that mean? James is also Jesus' half-brother. But I love that they, never, that they never claim that because once they come to understand that their brother is the son of God, they're like, oh, you're different than us. Can you imagine what their family dynamic was growing up? By the way, if you can get your brother to believe you're the son of God, you're the son of God. Okay? And so he says, I'm a brother of James, but to those who have been called who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. I'm just going to run through this really quick because you need to be reminded of the story that God wants to tell in and through your life so you can connect his ultimate story to your immediate need. Here's your story. Here's how it begins. Called. What does it mean for God to call you? What is this, like a phone call? What does it mean? No, no, no. For God to call you is more than him talking to you and wooing you and drawing you in. For God to call you, it means he opens your eyes despite your sin to be able to see him as the one desirable, all-satisfying treasure in all of the universe. 
The moment you saw Jesus as the greatest option for your life, that was God making you see Jesus as the greatest option for your life. So God's call is more than, hey, are you not convicted by this message? And hey, if you let me in, I'll come and fill up the inside of your heart. God's calling is, let me open your eyes and supernaturally change your mind and not let you waste your existence on planet Earth. I'll call you. And watch this. Once you've been called, you are also loved by the Father. So now you've been brought in. You've been given supernatural purpose to be a part of the story, but now you've met your ultimate need. Why do human beings run themselves in the ground with activity and try to control outcomes? It's because ultimately at the bottom, our ultimate need is for the approval of a father. And James, Judah's saying, it's not that you're going to get this approval when you get to heaven and the story ends. He's saying you have the fullness of this approval right now in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus as the perfect lamb, son of God, stands in our place. That's what God sees when God sees us. Some of you, every issue of your story is tied to the fact that you have never let your heavenly father make up for the wounds caused by your earthly father. And Judah's saying, you've been called by God, you've been included in the story, and you've been loved by God. And this has been true about you from the beginning of time. And then the third one, this is the best one, kept in Christ Jesus. So not only did God call you, not only does he love you, if he calls you and loves you, he also promises to keep you. How long? Forever. If God has done one of these things in your life, all three are true. So what's beautiful about the story of God is that although it's unfolding in real time, he's sovereign and he's decisive. And if God opens your eyes to see Jesus as the only satisfying treasure in the universe and you fall into a love relationship with God, there is a promise over your story. And that promise is you will spend all of eternity in the presence of God. You are kept, you are held. Now, keep in mind, I know that some people get wooed by the voice of God and have a moment where they go, I, I want to follow God, but I'm going to go my own way. And we have these examples all over the scriptures. But what we love to do with a passage like this is we love to talk in these theological absolutes where we sort of rhetorically come up with all these situations where, what if somebody does this? What if somebody does this? What if somebody does this? But the scriptures don't have that as their intention. The scriptures have you looking at yourself in the mirror as their intention. And if this is true about you, if God has called you and you have accepted the love of Jesus over your life and you've been given a new purpose and a new meaning, the promise of God is your eternal security in Jesus. In other words, God's not watching how your life unfolds to decide whether or not you're his. The decision to make you his was made on a cross, scratch that, before the cross because Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. God has decided to adopt you into his family. And his promise is, you want to know your story? You want to talk about trusting the story? Here's the story I want to write in your life. I want to call you, I want to love you, and I promise to keep you. Miles, what do you want me to do with this? What does the gospel want you to do with it? Believe it. Trust it. Your part is going, I'm good with that. How awesome is God? And how trivial is it for us to say that we believe all of that is true and still worry about whether or not God cares about the little stories that are unfolding in our lives. If all of that is true, I've been called, I've been loved, I've been kept. It's like there's a part of us that goes, yeah, yeah, I know he's going to get me to heaven and I know Jesus died and I know all these things are true in the Bible, but I got like a real need today. 
I got like a real lack. I got real pain that's happening right now. And our temptation is to believe God with faith for the overarching story. But where we are right now, some of you are living in a season that you just want to escape as fast as you can. And it can be so easy to believe God's faithfulness over the story on a grand scale, but be blind to what he's doing in your life individually right now. And I just want to speak to you and remind you, if those three things are true about your eternal story, what else is true about your immediate need right now? God is infinitely involved in all of that, but he's also intimately concerned about your good today. He loves you. He cares about your kids. Some of you who are like me and all you think about all the time is whether or not your kids are going to love Jesus, that is not going to have a lot to do with you. That is going to have to do with how much you get out of God's way. And how much you create a pathway for God to do in and through your life what you can't do on your own. See, trusting God for the overarching story of salvation seems so simplistic because like we pray a prayer, eternal security, can't wait to get to heaven. But then we got all these immediate needs and our lives have resulted in all these anxieties in the individual story. And I'm just saying, if you can get your eyes above what you see today to the story that God is writing across eternity, maybe you can rest. I want to talk about rest. This is a popular word right now, but rest has more to do with faith and trust than it has to do with relaxation. When you trust, when you have faith, we sing songs about, God, I just want to have faith in you. I put my faith in Jesus. And we think it's like this active doing something. Faith is literally the surrender and getting out of the way and admitting that if you had a part to play, you would fail. Faith is rest. Faith is going, I rest in the promises that you have made, that you will complete what you start. And I'm just going to step out and get out of your way. Now, here's what Jude says. Go down to verse 21. I love this verse. He's given all these commands for what he wants the people to do with his charge and warning. And he says this. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. So that's God's ultimate story for your life. What does God want from you right now in the story? What's your role? Here it is. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. In other words, keep yourselves in God's commitment to keep you. Just stay in love. Just stay dependent. Just stay restful. Just stay trusting. Just stay in that position that says, God, it's still all you, and I believe it. And that's where true rest is found. Y'all don't miss this. Rest is not a phase of life. It's a way of life. And I'm getting frustrated with myself as a pastor who reads a lot of material that's being put out because there's so much being produced about rest because we are the most overcommitted, overwhelmed, and overexposed generation that has ever lived. What having all the information in the world in the palm of our hands has done is not make us powerful. It's made us weak and anxious. And it's made us spend all of our time comparing ourselves to other people and all of our time inundated with so much. And so we, we have this restlessness. But our response to restlessness, for the most part, has been to create more content about slowing down. And do not get me wrong. I love slowing down. I told y'all, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, one of my favorite books I've ever read. But there's like 10 others that say the exact same thing that came out last year or the year before. And you've read some of them. If you haven't read that one, you've read The Best Yes or Present Over Perfect or getting rid of hustle or, I mean, it's like there's so many, and I love all of these authors that are putting this out, but have you noticed that the the narrative right now is all of these things claiming to solve a problem that everybody's getting worse at? 
And so it's like, okay, 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 I need to change up my rhythm. I need to get a little more rest. I need to think, I've been burning the candle at both ends. And we say things like, I need a vacation. I just need to step away. I need to fast from social media and get my mind right. But here's the thing. These quick fixes are only increasing our ultimate problem because we're becoming more anxious because we don't realize rest is not this add-on to your life that you put on top of being tired. Rest is at the center and the first priority of what it means to be a Christian. Here's what I mean. When God created the world, and I do want you to go back and read Genesis chapter 1. I was going to preach on Genesis 1 this week because it's the beginning of the story, and this is the beginning of the series, and God took me to Jude, random. Um, but, but in Genesis 1, when you read the progression of how God created the world, it's so tempting to think that Sabbath makes no sense. It's like God creates, creates, creates. There's this rhythm to every day, and it was evening, and it was morning that day, da 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 da, da. And then on the seventh day, God rested because he was finished. It's like, why, why aren't there six days? Oh, you just want to add one on? And he blessed this day and made it holy. And then some of you are like, that's because God knows. We need rest. And he's creating, he's creating this narrative where we do what he does and work for six days and then rest on the seventh. But here's the thing. The seventh day in God's creation is the only day that has no marked ending, and the seventh day is actually not humanity's seventh day. It's humanity's first day. So when God creates us on day six, the first thing he does the very next day is nothing. And I think that's intentional. I think that's to tell us, hey, I called this day holy. Because before you go out and produce everything that you're going to produce about your identity during the day, you need to know those activities don't tell you who you are. Sitting here and doing nothing and being made in my image tells you all you need to know about your value and you can rest. You're a part of my family, and just trust the story. Yes, you're going to get to be a part of it. Yes, you're called to be productive, and all those things are important, but rest, watch this. Rest is not an add-on after the fact. It's the first thing. It's where we start. You know, every day in that narrative, it says, and there was evening, and there was morning that day. That's backward, because the day begins in the morning, right? Not in a Jewish mind. In Judaism, the day begins when the sun goes down, and you go to bed, because the thought is, my life does not center on waking up and going and being productive. The center of my life is laying here and God running and creating and restoring the whole universe and me just along for the ride. So if you go to Israel, Sabbath is on Saturday. It actually begins on Friday night. And they start it because the thought is we can't have a mindset that tells us I'm on the grind and I'm going to get up in the morning and define my identity. No, your story gets in God's hands when you go, I'm grateful to be a part of it, but my role, my responsibility is just to rest. And I'll tell you why we don't rest. This is, this is so key, and I've waited all week to tell you this. We don't rest because we think we're like God in Genesis 1. God works for six, needs a break, takes a break. But here's the difference. God rests when the work is over. We rest because God is still working. We'll put that on the screen. I can say it better. God rests when he is finished working. We rest because God is still working. So if you're like me, especially the parents in the room, you're like, I would rest, but my whole life is unkempt. Like, like I've got to get this done to the car, this done to the house. My kids need this. Everything's always a mess. And so you're constantly in this state of picking up the pieces from what happened before. And you and I believe, it's a lie. We believe we'll get rest on the back end of this season. I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell some of you, especially some of you new parents, that day's not coming. Like the day where you're like, everything's just figured out with the house. Everything's figured out with this and this and this situation. It's always going to be all over the place. So rest, we believe, like, I mean, it's going to be once the job is done. Here's the thing. The job's not done until you're in the presence of God. 
That's when it's done. Until then, you've got to learn to redirect what you're resting from and for. So I'm not resting from work because I'm done. I'm resting from my need to act like I'm God because I'm not. And so I rest because I'm like, if you're going to work, if you're going to be up all night watching the universe, I guess I can sleep and sleep deeply because you got this. We rest because our God is still working, and we rest because God always finishes what he starts. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? Carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The great thing about God working is there is a guaranteed finished product. He's not the type of artist that gets started and decides, you know what, I just can't finish this right now. I'm going to go do something else. He is a creator and sustainer and finisher. Hebrews calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. And if God has began a good work in you, I promise you he will finish it. And I promise you that's not just true about your salvation and your sanctification. That's also true about your marriage. That's also true about your career. It's also true about your kids. And I'm not saying it's going to be pretty, but I am saying he's faithful. And so what I want to do is I want to get to the last part of Jude and show you what I think is the coolest doxology in the whole Bible. When I was growing up, this was the only part of Jude that I really understood. And we had a situation come up in our church recently that just highlighted it in my mind. So let me read this over you. And if you have discomfort about, well, I just don't know about how all the details of my story are going to end up. And I want to know about the end, the end, the end. Here's the end. You ready for this? Verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. It was so powerful about those words and why I was drawn to them this week was thinking about a story in our church where two weeks ago, we actually lost who I thought was the oldest member of our church. Apparently, there was a competition between him and another man in our church named Slayton. But there's a man in our church, David Naden, who passed away two weeks ago at 91 years old. And he had his family all around him. And when they told me this story, I just could not believe what I was seeing and what I was reading. He's about two miles from where this building is. He's got his family all around him. He wakes up one morning, married for 66 years. His wife is actually with us this morning. We're glad you're here. But he wakes up. He wants to eat breakfast. And he asks his grandkids to read to him his favorite passage of Scripture. And the passage reads Jude, verses 24 through 25. And right after reading it, you can ask them after the service, and I'm not, I'm not making this up. He reads it closes his eyes, he takes three deep breaths, and he's gone. Let me read it again with that context. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. When there's a doxology in the Bible, it usually begins with actions that are either taking place right now, have taken place before, or will take place in the future. And then the back end is attributes in light of those actions. 
So what's happening here is Jude is going, this is what God is going to do. Love it. He who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you without fault and with great joy. That's what he's going to do. But the attributes that are given to him are glory and majesty, the dominion, the authority. And so your invitation today, entrust the story. This is just part one. I promise God's going to have more on the back end of this. Look up here. The invitation is that glory, that majesty, and that word, that last word, most of all, that authority would be given to God. And that no longer you would live your life taking up authority that is not your own to try to control the story. That you would live your life in the peace that comes from knowing, I don't have authority to write my story, and that's a great thing. That's actually something I'm going to learn to delight in. And the more I delight and rest in the faithfulness of God, the more I get to enjoy this journey. Because here's the thing, life is hard, and there's brokenness, and there is sin. But you get one life this side of heaven if you know Jesus. Why don't we enjoy the journey following our good shepherd in the midst of all the brokenness? Why do we got to spend our entire lives always freaking out about what might happen next? Why do we have to absolutely trade away every season that we are currently in with all of our concerns for the season that's still to come? Why can't we just in a given moment go, I'm not God, and that's awesome. You have the authority. You are the one who's writing this, and I'm going to enjoy it. And what, listen, you start walking with a church like that and everybody's acting like that. You talk about us having something here that nobody's got out there in the church or outside of it. Christians are the most anxious people. It makes no sense. So is the world around us without hope and without God. And we start living like this. Oh, wow. I promise you what will draw people to be a part of Auburn Community Church will not be the preaching or the singing or the buildings or whatever we do next. It will be the faith of the people who trust the story. I got two quick points. I'm taking them straight out of this passage. And you might be like, what, what do you want me to do with this? I want you to take the grand narrative of what God has promised you. And I want you to apply it right where you are right now. So what did it say? You might have not caught this in verse 24. It says, you're going to be presented before the glorious presence of God without fault and with great joy. That is absolutely ridiculous that God would make you that promise. Presenting you to Jesus without fault. And with great joy. So those are my two points. Number one, let's just sprint through it. Number one, without fault. This is a process called sanctification where God is progressively making you more like Jesus over time so that as my favorite song that has ever been written says, one day we will faultlessly stand before the throne of God. I love Cornerstone. I don't care how many times I hear it. I don't care how many times we sing it. That's my favorite worship song of all time. Matt, we're changing the set. I'm just kidding. Um, we're not. We're going with what we, what we talked about. Okay. But whenever I say that line, my jaw almost hits the floor. Faultless stand before the throne. I'm like, that, that's not possible. Because I know me. And what that does for somebody who has any level of self-reflection is it makes you a little bit uneasy because you're like, I don't trust myself. And if, if any of that is going to be placed in my hands to accomplish, it is not happening. So when you think about this, if God told you this is what's going to be true about your life and you asked him, what's my part in making that happen? You better hope he says, stay out of my way. Because if you have any part, you're going to have a fault. Faith is the ability to go 100% Jesus, 0% me. And I am, I don't trust myself. Okay, okay. If you don't trust yourself to be a part of that, why do you trust yourself more than God for all the little stories that are unfolding in your life? Why are you doing that? Like, if you're going to let God have something that's that big of a deal, 
Why would you take on the results of everything that you're facing right now? Why would you want to feel that? And why don't you just stay in a place that goes, okay, if that's the story you're going to tell in and through my life and you're committed to actually getting me there, then fine. I don't trust myself. You take it. I trust the story without fault. And God could have easily let you just say to present you without fault. And we should rejoice at that. But God doesn't just want to eradicate sin from your life. He wants to insert joy and forever happiness. Gosh, our God is so good. And he's telling such a good story. So without fault, watch this, with great joy. God doesn't just want to make sure you end up in his presence sinless. He wants to make sure you end up in his presence with a smile. And you're ready to worship. And you're ready to take delight. And you're ready to spend eternity doing what you've been created to do. And maybe this is why we live so exhausted and so joyless. It's because we like the without error, the without sin, the without fault part. But we don't insert the with great joy. And we are actually commanded in scripture to enjoy the journey. Did y'all know that? Look at Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is one of the most neglected commands in the Bible. You think about God's commands and you're like, all the things I have to do? No, what if God's command to you today was delight? What does it mean to delight? It means to take pleasure in. What if Jesus was the most frustrated with the fact that you don't enjoy him enough and you don't trust him enough to actually enjoy this journey? And I know there's things that are gonna happen that you're not gonna understand, but the invitation is what? Take delight in the Lord and he will do what? Give you the desires of your heart. Every Christian within the sound of my voice needs new desires, and your story will self-destruct if you let your life be dictated by sinful desires. But when God restores your heart, this is huge, he gives you a desire for Jesus that's greater than the desires of this world. But how he promises to do that is by you enjoying him. In other words, the more that you enjoy God and take delight in God, the more he will transform the desires of your heart. So when I say with great joy, I'm going, We've got to have a joy that's not circumstantial. And we've got to have a joy that says, I take delight in the fact that you are writing a story that on the back end, I'm going to look at and it's going to make perfect sense. But until then, you're not even having to enjoy the circumstances of the story as much as you are enjoying the author and his presence. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Israel would always have moments to mark the faithfulness of God and they would have parties. And if you've ever been to a party in the Eastern side of things, it's very different. When they throw weddings, it lasts a week. When we throw weddings, if we're at the reception for longer than two hours, we're like, come on. Like, what? What do you guys, don't you guys have something else to do? Like, we gotta move on. We are, we are terrible at actually delighting and enjoying what God has given us to enjoy. And so what they do is they have these moments where they mark the faithfulness of God and they throw celebrations and they go, we're just, what, what are you doing? We're just delighting in the Lord. What if delighting became the mechanism that you use to demonstrating you trusting God's story? I am intentionally enjoying the breath that God has given me today because I get to be a part of this story for another day. And when I see the day where everything I'm going through right now finally makes sense, that's fine. But I don't need to see it to enjoy it because I don't look at what I see. I walk by faith and not by sight. And when what I see doesn't look like what God says, I don't trust what I see. I trust what God says. He is faithful to finish what he starts. 
So let's be this church. I wanted to end this sermon giving you a moment in the presence of God to turn your heart toward heaven and go, God, I trust you. We got that command, be still and know that I am God. I want you to revel and smile and enjoy the fact that God has not called you to be God. For some of you, for the first time in your life, you need to give your life to Jesus because he's got pleasures forevermore. He is the ultimate meaning of life and he is the only one who offers you the reason why you have breath in your lungs. But for most of you who know Jesus, this is a reminder, you're not God. Enjoy it, breathe it in, and trust him. I'm gonna pray, and I'm just gonna ask that you would stay right where you are. Band's gonna come up here. You guys can go ahead and come up. We're gonna sing a powerful song. But before we do, we need to sit in the presence of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. I pray that as people get a moment to breathe, that they would not waste this time, that they would turn over every detail of the story and every detail of the future to you. That God, you're writing a story that's better than anything we can come up with. And what you promise with words, we know you'll fulfill with action. So God, meet with people intimately. Meet with people who are hurting while you meet with people who are just apathetic. Somehow, Holy Spirit, speak to people right where they are today, right here and right now. We love you, God. We trust you with this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just sit in this for a minute.